turn with me to the beginning of John. We're reading the prologue again, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. If you have a copy of God's word, just want to encourage you to keep it open to that page or that place on your phone. we're going, to be, we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 6 through 8 this morning. The question I, I have to ask you is, who or what do you strive to make most supreme in your life? What do you seek to lift up as the most magnificent so that if this thing is center stage, it will bring you ultimate joy? What is that in your life? Now, there's nothing wrong with us seeking joy. The problem is where we try to find it. So we lift up things as supreme when they don't satisfy. Ultimately, unsatisfying supremes, insufficient saviors. That's what happens when we turn to our careers and relationships and our leisurely comforts to find that they ultimately leave us empty because one day the career ends or the person you love dies or the leisurely comfort that you have grows old and you don't want it anymore. These are unsatisfying supremes. And so perhaps we then turn to put ourselves center stage and we say, I'm the most supreme. If I can build people into me and get them to like me or get them to praise me, then I will be happy. And so the pursuit of joy becomes a pursuit of self-praise, of pride, of envy. Of course, there's always going to be someone out there who's better. There's always going to be someone who's up next. There's always going to be someone who critiques you and doesn't like the things you do. There's always going to be this internal guilt, this internal battle that we face every day that reminds us that we are not 
supreme. And so putting ourselves as supreme also doesn't ultimately satisfy. So the question is, who or what do you strive to make supreme in your life? That's the question that this morning's sermon is going to explore so that perhaps my prayer is that you leave with a different answer than you came with. There's this great irony in the Bible. It's the irony of unsatisfying self-centeredness. The temptation is to think that making ourselves most important, most supreme, will bring us the most joy. And this morning, I want to plead with you to not fall for that lie. That the first will be last. Last will be first. So I want to plead with you to intentionally make someone else central and to intentionally make yourself not central. And I want to convince you that in the Bible, that's not the path to gloom. It's the path to joy. So you might be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with the prologue of John's gospel that we just read? Where does making someone else supreme and making us not supreme show up in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18? And so to answer that, I want to direct your eyes to verses 6 through 8 because that's where it shows up. Here we have John the Apostle, John the beloved disciple, John, the son of Zebedee, John, the writer of this gospel, the one who wrote the gospel of John, is making mention of another John that you might know by the name of John the Baptist. So John, the writer, is introducing us to John the Baptist, and as he does so, he does not call him John the Baptist. Never in this entire book does he refer to him as the Baptist. Instead, he refers to John more by the title of a witness. So here's verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John was a witness, a particular kind of witness. And his mission as a witness was to witness. And there are two things that characterize the witness of John. And my prayer is that these two things would characterize my witness they would characterize your witness, King's Tree Church's witness. The two things that characterize the witness of John were this. Jesus is the light. We are not the light. In other words, Jesus is supreme. We are not supreme. I've been in this book all week and have, by God's grace, discovered connections between verses 6 and 8 and even down in verse 15 of this chapter 
Then over in chapter 3 and chapter 12, which we'll all read. That's the benefit of being able to sit down just at length, just to read the whole book. You start to see how things in the end answer things at the beginning because you see it all in context. And this has just been astonishing to see. And this morning, I want you to see them. And I want you to ponder them and treasure them. And then I want you to live your whole life on them. Our witness, if we are to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, requires our lives and our lips to declare two things. Jesus is the light and I am not the light. And we'll see that this is the path to joy. He's everything. I'm nothing. Fullness of joy. And I think that if you live your life with this kind of witness about Jesus, you'll show people that their hope and their life and their security and their joy comes from making little of themselves and much of Jesus Christ. We cannot live to make much of Jesus by living to make much of us. And if we only draw people to Jesus so that they'll be drawn to us, there's a massive problem there. We exist for the other We exist for it to go the other way around, for us to draw people to him. And if you show people through your life and your lips that he's the light, he's the life, he's the hope of the world, he's the living water, and I'm not, you'll show people that they need to stop trusting in themselves and to trust in the only one who can save and that making him supreme is worth it. So let's begin with the first and most fundamental message of our witness. Jesus is the light. And here's what I want you to see in this witness, in this proclamation. It is necessary for us to be witnesses to Jesus if we want people to believe in Jesus. It is necessary And I want to show you this reality by zooming in on three key words to unpack it. We're going to zoom in on the word witness, on the word believe, and on the word light. To show you that this proclamation, Jesus is the witness, that that is necessary. If we want people to believe. So witness. Verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. When you read the first 18 verses of chapter 1, like Josh just did, you may have noticed that verse 6 is kind of clunky. I mean, here's verses 1 through 5, talking about the eternal word, talking about how Jesus is God. Then all of a sudden, it feels like it flips. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It just doesn't feel right at first. It feels forced. It feels unnatural. Everything else sounds poetic. And then... He gets interrupted by this introduction to a man named John. It's all about God. It's all about the eternal word. Now it's about a man. And what's really odd about this is that this man, John, is going to witness about God. Now, why is that odd? Why is it odd that there's a mere man 
who's going to bear witness about Jesus. It's odd because that's what Jesus came to do about God. Jesus is the word. He is the full and final word or message or self-revelation of who God is. If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. He's the light and the light shines in the darkness. In verse 9, he's the true light that came into the world. In verse 18, he, Jesus, is the one who has made God known. So Jesus is a witness. To make matters more strange, in chapter 8, Jesus says, I'm the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus is a witness and Jesus is God, which means Jesus is the greatest witness about God that there is. So then why does God send a mere human being named John to witness? It seems odd. Well, it's not like God needs to, as though he can't make a name for himself without using people. But he chooses to do it by using people. And I think what John the writer is doing just six verses into this gospel is that he wants us to see that the way people are going to know God is, yes, by knowing Jesus, the greatest witness. But the way that they're going to know Jesus is by lesser witnesses like John and you and me pointing them to him. That's just how God has chosen to do things. In fact, in Acts 1... Verse 8, Jesus makes our mission to be witnesses clear. He died, he resurrected, and before he ascends into heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the greatest witness to who God is, is Jesus. He's the word, he's the message. But then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Go be my witnesses everywhere. So if he's the witness, we're supposed to witness about him. Then our word of testimony should be about the word. And our speech should be about the speech. Our message should be about the message. It's like you're standing in a court. And you're called to come and testify to the truth and the truth that we have known, the truth that we've felt, the truth that we've seen, and the truth that we've come to believe is Jesus. That's what a witness is. Witnesses come to testify to what they've seen. And in this case, we testify to the world about who God is by pointing them to Jesus Christ. And the point that I want us to see is that it's necessary for us to be human witnesses to the divine word. That's why John, I think, includes it and sort of interrupts what's going on in the prologue with this. John wants to make it clear right away by showing us John the witness that this whole thing, God is going to use human witnesses. Which means we must be involved in proclaiming the good news if we want people to believe in him. And have life. It's how God has designed things to work through human witnesses bearing witness to the word, Jesus. 
I'll give you another example of this design and that it's necessary for us to be witnesses, not by focusing on the word witness, but now focusing on the word belief. You might remember in John chapter 20, verse 31, the last verse of chapter 20, John gives us the purpose. This is John the writer now, not John the witness or or the Baptist. John the writer, the gospel writer, gave us the purpose for why he wrote everything in this book. He said, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of this book is that you'd have life in Christ. And the way to have life in Christ is by believing in him. And this idea of belief is a central theme to this whole gospel. The question is, how do people come to believe and have life by believing in Jesus? According to John 20, by reading the things John wrote. John, this human witness, wrote these things down so that by reading them, we would believe and have life in his name. Embedded in the very purpose of this book, it shows us that it requires a human witness. So now if we look at our text for today in chapter 1, verse 7, we see this theme of belief again. Belief leading to life is the purpose of this book. And we're about to read in verse 7 of chapter 1, the very first time belief comes up in the whole book. That would be fairly important, right? This whole book's about belief in Jesus. What's the first time John even brings belief up? It's in verse 7. He, John the Baptist, John the witness, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John the Baptist witnessed so that people would believe in Jesus through his witness. And this is the first mention of belief in the entire book, which sort of sets the foundation for how people are going to come to have faith. And in this first occurrence, it's through a human witness opening our mouths. People believing in Jesus, having life in Jesus requires the church to open our mouths and declare the good news of Jesus. Our witness that Jesus is the light, the life, the savior of the world is necessary. That's the point of Romans 10, isn't it? How will they call on him and whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? They're not going to hear unless someone witnesses about it. So for them to believe, we must go and witness. Now, there's just one more thing I want to point out about why our witness is necessary. And we saw it looking at the word witness, looking at the word belief. Now we're going to look at the word light. And I think this is absolutely astounding that God would use us to do this very next part. I mean, it's beyond comprehension. I cannot wrap my mind around the great privilege and honor it is to be used by God to do this next thing that we're about to see. It says in verse 7 that John came to bear witness about what? The light. And first, I just read over that. 
then you think about it a little bit longer and you wonder, why does the light need someone to witness about it? It's a light. It doesn't need a witness. It's obvious. And don't you think it'd be rather silly if you walked outside and I came up to you and said, hey, do you know the sun's right there? You'd say, hey, I know the sun's there. It's a big, bright light. Okay, I don't need somebody to witness to me about where the sun is. Or imagine you're about to fall asleep. It's pitch black in your room. It's nice, comfy. You're laying on your back, facing the ceiling, dozing off, about to slip into a dream. Somebody walks in and flicks on the light and blinds you and there's pain. And they say, hey, did you notice I turned the light on? You'd say, yeah, it's painful. It hurts. I don't need somebody to witness about the fact that there's a light there. It's annoyingly obvious. Light does not need a witness unless you're blind and can't see. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so God sends human beings to witness about the light that these other human beings, if they're not alive in Christ, can't see. He sends Christians who have been, who've had eyes opened sends us to a darkened, blind world to scream, there's a light there. Open your eyes and see Him. This is urgency. We've had our eyes open and we've seen Jesus the light and now we're called to go point blind eyes to Him. And unless someone tries to see, tries to help them see, they never will. Verse 7 says that John bore witness about the light so people would believe through him. The question is, did it work? Does God open blind eyes through mere human beings witnessing to the light? The answer is yes. Look in chapter 1 again, this time a little further down, verses 35 through 37. Now here's John with John's disciples, not Jesus' disciples yet, but John's disciples. Chapter 1, starting in verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He told them to look, to behold, to see the light. What happened? Verse 37 The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Our witness that Jesus is the light is absolutely necessary. God uses it to open blind eyes that would have never been opened unless we witnessed. So I want to read to you Paul's account, the Apostle Paul, his story of how he was called to the ministry by Jesus to preach. And in fact, Paul uses the word witness. He talks about how Jesus called him to be a witness. And then I want you to notice in this text, you don't have to flip there, I'll read it for you, but you can if you want. It's in Acts 26. I want you to notice the connection here between Paul's witness and the opening of blind eyes. Here's Acts 26, starting in verse 16. 
Paul's telling leaders that he's standing before how he was called to the ministry. So here's Paul saying what Jesus told him. But rise and stand upon your feet, Paul, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to do what? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Christian, has it occurred to you that your witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ is used by God to do that? To open blind eyes. We know that God is the one who opens eyes to see the glory of Christ. We can't take credit for eyes opening, but God uses us and we aren't plan B. The church is plan A to be witnesses to Jesus. And it's the only plan to spread the gospel and to open blind eyes from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so I ask you, who will you point to the light? Who will you go to and grab them by the shoulders and love and urgency and say, behold, the Lamb of God. Your life is meant to be a witness to Jesus. And my prayer that God would work in our hearts this morning, perhaps in your heart this morning, to send you. To send you to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to fellow students, to your workplace, maybe to an unreached people group, that he would send you to be a witness. So... We've seen all this marvelous truth about the first part of our witness, right? That Jesus is the light. And now we turn to the other truth about our witness. We are not the light. Jesus is the light. We are not the light. He is supreme. We are not supreme. So where does that show up in this gospel? Take a look at verse 8. The idea that John is not the light is made clear in verse 8. It says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John the writer goes the extra mile to let us know who John the witness was not. He was not the light. Jesus was. Jesus was, but John wasn't. You might say, okay, but... That's John, the writer, saying that about John, the witness. But how does John, the witness, feel about this? Did John, the witness, go around, go to great lengths to show people that he isn't all that special, but that Jesus is? And for that, I'll direct you down to verse 15. And this is John, the Baptist now, John, the witness, speaking for himself. And it says this, John bore witness about him, Jesus, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. 
because he was before me. Now, why does John the Baptist say that? Why does he say he who comes after me, meaning Jesus, ranks before me because he was before me? Why does he say that? And there is some context that's needed here. Here's the first piece of context you need to know. In John's day, the elderly were honored. Today, we have a poor view of those who are older. It's a shame that there's this rhetoric that they're old school, they're out of touch, they're losing their strength, they're just stuck in their ways. It's truly a shame that our culture thinks that all these young people without much life experience know everything better than people who've lived life longer and have wisdom. But it wasn't like that in John's day. Instead, the person born before you was to be respected and honored more than you. So that's the first piece of context you need to know. If they're born before you, honor them. The second piece of context is this. John was born before Jesus. So according to custom, John should have been honored above Jesus. You were supposed to respect those who came before you. And John's birth was before Jesus' birth. So now with those two pieces of evidence, let's go back and read verse 15 again, where John says, He, Jesus, who comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, all this honor and respect and worth the culture says that I should have because I was born before Jesus, I throw it all away. Jesus ranks before me because Jesus was before me. John is saying, he may have been born after I was born, but he has existed forever. And so before there was me, there has always been him. So he gets all the respect. He ranks before me. He gets all the honor, all the glory. Jesus is the light. I am not the light. I'm no big deal. Jesus is the big deal. The question is, do we live our lives like that? John says something similar down in verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Talking about Jesus. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is how John spoke. I'm not the light. He ranks before me. He was before me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. And my prayer is that you and I would be like that. That the proclamation of our lives and our lips would declare, He is the light. I'm not the light. Stop looking at me. Look at Him. As I read through this gospel, I began to see a very clear distinction between John's heart towards Jesus and the religious leader's heart towards Jesus. So I want to show you this contrast. First by looking at the Pharisees, and then we'll look at Jesus. They almost say the exact opposite. 
So here's the Pharisees in John chapter 12. John 12, verses 17 through 19. Now this is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And all the people wanted to be around Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you? You just raised somebody from the dead. I'm probably going to stay around him. And the envy of the Pharisees comes out. Here's John 12, 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, sorry, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. All the people went after Jesus and the Pharisees hated it. They wanted the praise and the glory and the attention for themselves. But now Jesus was getting it. In other words, they thought we're the supreme ones and Jesus is not. We're the light. Jesus is not. They hated the world turning towards the one who made them. This is envy. It's pride. It's at the root of all of our sin. Our rejection of God, our rejection of His ways to make ourselves front and center. It's pride. It's envy. And what a shame. That's why we had to confess it this morning. What a shame to claim the name of Christ and still live to make a name for ourselves. Look at the example of John the witness now. In contrast to the Pharisees, it's almost exactly the opposite. And to get there, you have to flip to chapter 3. So here's John chapter 3, verses 26 through 30. We'll read about John the witness. They came to John. This was John's disciples, his students. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, meaning Jesus, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Notice that. All are going to Jesus. Just like the Pharisees said, the whole world is going to him. So what's John's response going to be now that all the people are leaving him for Jesus? John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here's the difference. The Pharisees saw the whole world going to Jesus. And they say, we're gaining nothing. But John saw the whole world going to Jesus and says, my joy is complete. That's what it means to be a witness. That Jesus is the light And we are not. We say with John, Jesus must increase, 
but I must decrease. We're like the bridegroom's friend. The bridegroom is finally with the bride and he's rejoicing and talking and all the people are talking and celebrating and giving them attention in the other room and we don't feel envy. We experience joy because the bridegroom is getting the attention he deserves. Jesus is the light. We are not the light. That's the message and the call of a faithful witness. And so it's worth our consideration to spend our lives, our whole lives, not just parts of it, our whole lives in such a way that it shows Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Constantly pointing to him and not to self. The path to making Jesus supreme with our lives and our lips is not by drawing people to us. Witnesses draw people to the goodness and the greatness of Jesus. He's the great one. He's the supreme one. He's the magnificent one. And we are not. As Paul said, I don't know if you know this verse or not, but it's good to remember. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, you might remember Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered. God caused the growth, so he who plants and he who waters is nothing. Have you taken personal inventory of your life to say, if people looked at me, what would they say I'm all about? I want to encourage you to use your tongue to make much of Jesus and not yourself. To use your time to make much of Jesus' plans and mission in the world and not your plans to use your talents to draw people to his goodness and not your giftedness to use your treasures to say my treasures aren't my treasure Jesus is so I'm going to use these to bring glory and honor to him as far and wide as I can And friends, this God-centered, Jesus-increasing, us-decreasing life is not the path to gloom. It is the path to joy. John saw everyone flocking to Jesus, and he said his joy was made complete. When Jesus becomes supreme to you, your life becomes overwhelmed with his worth and his honor and his glory. So you want him to be displayed and cherished. And you know the only thing that will bring ultimate joy to you is God. And so you trust now that if he's supreme, I'm satisfied. And so people flocking to the supreme one won't be a problem. It won't make you jealous. It will make you joyful. That's who we're called to be, faithful witnesses who say, Jesus is the light, I am not the light. Everyone should go to him and not to me, and I will be very, very happy.